Noise Nation. Happy New Year's, y'all, and welcome to the first Device Nation episode of 2023. A lot of resolutions going on out there. What's a New Year's resolution? Something that goes in one year and out the other. Yeah, we're good for dad jokes here at Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. And it's easy for me as I am the proud father of three amazing children. Newsflash for you young parents, said Captain Obvious. Raising kids now is just getting ridiculously expensive. You know what the most expensive part is, by the way? All the wine you have to drink. Back by popular demand, the laugh track. I pull it up after every joke I tell my wife. Now it never gets old. I keep telling her. It makes all my jokes incrementally more funny. Well, here's a New Year's resolution for your consideration to incrementally augment your income. How about this? Write it down. Three in 2023. Say it again. Three in 2023. Let's aim for at least three additional income streams in our mailbox this year, independent of the primary company we're representing now. Why is that so important, Kevin? Well, here's a couple thoughts. There's an RFP coming your way this spring. The hospital wants 15% lower pricing than the three-year agreement they signed Late last year, this summer, your company will be wanting to specialize the sales force to address lagging segment sales. So that trauma and upper extremity business you've relied on to augment your joints, well, that's all going to a freshly scrubbed face straight out of medical sales college. This fall, increased transportation costs will result in a $300 debit on any new loaner request. And this winter, your primary surgeon will be filing for divorce and moving to another state. I know what you're thinking. Number one, that general manager position at Bucky's is looking better and better. And number two, ah, that'll never happen in my territory, right? Well, I don't know if it will or it won't. But what I do know is that if you're a medical device rep these days, you need to be a mutual fund and not a stock. Resolve to have a hedge in place for that surprise phone call. Contact our team at sidelinesaturday at gmail.com. And we so look forward to introducing you to products I sell from companies I trust. Sidelinesaturday at gmail.com. Let's go for three in 2023. Well, Device Nation has made a New Year's resolution to up our game, bringing you even more ideas, stories, and interviews with inspiring people to help take you from good to great. And we're coming out of the gate strong with our conversational kickoff today. Years ago, I was in a total knee with the Dr. John Insall, and there was a surgeon scrubbed in with him whose career I have followed for some time now, design team member of the most successful knee replacement in the history of orthopedics, over 100 published scientific articles and book chapters in orthopedic medical journals and textbooks, editor of several textbooks on knee surgery, continues to lecture worldwide on knee replacement, former president of the Knee Society, maestro of metal and plastic, Dr. Gil Scuderi. You're going to want to hang around for this inspiring interview as well as some predictions for this new year. One thing you can never predict is how things are going to go over the holidays, having all the family under one roof. I hope your holiday season was drama-free. I'm so thankful my family is all still on speaking terms. That can be a Christmas miracle in itself, right? I'm particularly thankful for an 11-month reprieve of Christmas music. Not all Christmas songs, mind you, as I'm the lead guitarist for Trans-Siberian Orchestra, at least in my mind. But two songs in particular that earn a ceasefire. The first is that Mariah Carey song that has been over overplayed to death. I don't even know what it's called anymore. I immediately go to my sonic safe space whenever it comes on. The other song 
We've been subjected to this dubious ditty for 36 years now, in my humble opinion, a seasonal reminder of the continued decline of Western civilization. And shockingly, number one on the UK Christmas playlist this year. Yeah, yeah, you know it. Just please resist the urge to sing along. Last Christmas by Wham. And look, I apologize in advance if Christmas tradition in your household as a kid was gathering the family around a roaring fire with a piping hot cup of cocoa on tap for a dramatic reading of these lyrics. But I believe this song has earned our scorn as a Christmas classic. Why? First off, like Mariah Carey's song that I choose not to remember, it's been completely overplayed. And second off, Lyrically, it has literally nothing to do with Christmas, like at all. Change that chorus line last Christmas to last Halloween, last Nurse's Day, last Squirrel Appreciation Day. Yeah, that's a real thing. And the meaning of the song remains unchanged. This is like taking a song I really like, like Silent Lucidity by Queensryche, and simply changing the chorus line to Silent Nativity and saying, look... It's a Christmas song now. One enterprising young couple from across the pond attempted to make this the last Christmas this song would ever be played if they were sick of it as well. They started a crowdfunding campaign to buy the rights so it could be retired and never heard again. So far, 327 people have pledged $62,000, but Hannah and Thomas Mazzetti have a daunting task ahead of them. The rights are currently valued somewhere between $15 and $25 million. Well, no fear. There's a lot of time between now and next Christmas, let's hope that 2023 brings us the last Christmas for this Christmas cacophony. Great word there, by the way. Cacophony literally meaning bad sound, something painful to listen to. Well, speaking of pain, joy and pain are like sunshine and rain, rain, get to raw Rob Bass, DJ Easy e Not a painful song to listen to at all. Joy and Pain, the theme song for our series as we explore box opener retention challenges and solutions. Why are reps leaving in a space that historically no one ever left? Well, some of you might be thinking, Kevin, people have been coming in and out of this field for eons. Nothing to see here. Move along. Au contraire, confrère, what's different now is quantity and quality. I know a surgeon who's been through 24 sports reps in four years. I'm sorry, that's insane. And the quality of reps leaving, well, in many cases, they're the reps you want to have around, the ones you thought would never leave as they had a good thing going. Well, Device Nation has a good thing going with our patented formula to make some sense out of this phenomenon. Retention equals joy over pain. Well, a high joy numerator and a little pain denominator, that equals a big retention number. No one wants to leave, and there are certainly a lot of great companies, distributorships, and teams cultivating just that. But for the companies, distributorships, and teams cultivating a low joy, high pain experience for their employees, well, 2023 could very well be the last Christmas for many of their reps. Well, let's take a close look at that pain, our working mnemonic, who doesn't love a good mnemonic, P, good thing we got a 
pop filter on the microphone here. P for the people in charge making decisions. One of them is certainly you, as you are ultimately in charge. But then there's the external component, the people above you and I making decisions, both positive and negative. A for the atmosphere. What's the working environment at your company, on your team, at the hospital for that matter? I for income. How much are you getting paid these days? And N for inventory or the lack thereof. Hopefully that's easing now that we've got that pesky fourth quarter earnings call out of the way. Well, what's the definitive treatment for decisions made by the people in charge that create negative atmosphere, income, and inventory symptoms? Well, here's the uncomfortable truth. All we can do in this scenario is manage symptoms as we can't change the decision that was handed down and we usually don't get invited to those meetings, right? This is a real angst point for overtaker reps, by the way. Undertaker and caretaker reps, now they're used to being told what to do and not questioning anything, but the entrepreneurial, small business-minded, success-driven rep has a hard time subordinating to authority, making decisions that they themselves would never make if they were in charge. I know I certainly have a problem with authority. No one does what I tell them to do. Well, look, I will tell you this. If you're that overtaker rep struggling with this pain point, here's two pieces of advice that I have learned walking through this stuff firsthand. Number one, great quote. French Renaissance philosopher Michel de Montaigne 500 years ago weighing in with this little gem. My life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. New and foreboding commandments coming down the mountain that make you think the sky is falling. Well, oftentimes it just never ends up happening. Let the tincture of time work on your behalf while at the same time working on your three in 2023 just in case the unthinkable does happen. Want an example of that? I talked to a friend of mine who worked for a small company in the foot and ankle space, heard some rumors of change that out of nowhere got very real very quick. They demanded everyone sign a non-compete and that's not a fun scenario if you've got 10 other companies in your bag and are told, well, it's either one or you're done. Well, she chose done and hit the road. Those sidelines were a lifeline to her next gig. See how that works? Hope for the best, but at the same time, prepare for the worst. A good rep always has a plan B in the hallway, right? Well, that's number one. Number two, embrace the OR concept of SOS. Abandon ship? No. SOS as in scope of service. True story. A Device Nation listener reached out to me for grief counseling a few months back. Seems like hospital administration had put policies into effect that just made doing his job seemingly impossible. Does that sound familiar? I intentionally used the word grief counseling as it had him so upset he couldn't see a way out. And there's the issue right there. You have to disconnect emotionally from vexatious decisions coming down from above, whether it's the hospital or your company. Why do we have to do that? Because you'll delay the eventual solution, being so upset at the sheer insanity of it all. Once my friend got that out of the way, the workaround presented itself. So what do sheer insanity decisions look like to you? Here's some ideas. Onerous freight and loaner charges, commission cuts, salesforce.com, non-competes, rep scrubs, what product you're allowed to carry. I thought we were independent contractors. Don't get me started. How about someone else telling you who you have to hire? Sometimes just as important, who you can't fire. Don't let it get under your skin. It just sets you back from figuring out how to treat the symptoms. Let's make a New Year's resolution to set ourselves free in 2023 from the people in charge by, here's a crazy concept, us taking charge. Let's review what we need to do. Number one, give time a chance. Sometimes that storm on the radar coming from corporate straight to your door doesn't produce 
a drop of rain. Number two, on the chance that it will rain, three in 2023, start putting together a plan B in the hallway now. Number three, business is business. Take charge of your emotions. Very poor decisions are made when we allow these things to get us all upset. And by the way, your customers deserve a happy rep. Lastly, we're not victims here. We need to focus on our true scope of service, the things we are in control of, which is a lot more than you think. And Device Nation is so looking forward to finding positive solutions to all these symptoms along with you this year. Well, speaking of positive solutions, our next guest is an orthopedic surgeon who has brought positive solutions to his patients and industry alike. Such an honor and a privilege to bring the story of one of my personal heroes to you, Dr. Gil Scuderi. Welcome to the show, sir. Ah, my pleasure. Kevin, it's great to get together. Dr. Scuderi, it is such an honor and a privilege to have you on Device Nation. As we chisel your likeness into the orthopedic Mount Rushmore, I so look forward to asking you about your work with the next-gen knee, the persona knee, telehealth, the femoral peel, revisions, the beginning of this journey in total knee replacement. But first, let's go back to Jamaica, New York. What put you on the path to medicine, sir? Wow, that's really going back a good number of years. You know, I have to reflect back to uh, my early days. I'm a New York boy, born and bred. I've always been uh, in the uh, local area. You know, it was interesting in high school and then going to college. I always had interest in the uh, sciences. One of my uh, cousins became the first physician in our family. We were close and he brought that interest to me. Fortunately, I was able to get into uh, medical school at Downstate New York and went on to uh, my residency at Lenox. Hill, really finding that orthopedics was a direction that I wanted to go. Was metal and plastic at the forefront of that direction at the very beginning, or was that something that evolved later? You know, it was interesting that uh, during my rotations at uh, Lenox Hill, I thought I was going to be a spine surgeon first. I had some really good mentors and uh, attending surgeons that were spine surgeons, spent some time in Boston at Boston Children's on a rotation with John Hall. And I thought coming back from that rotation, I was going to get into spine. Then after some conversations with uh, Norm Scott and my experience uh, on the knee service at Lenox Hill, I was introduced to uh, John Insull and was fortunate enough to to uh, become his fellow at HSS, and that really moved my entire career into the uh, world of arthroplasty, especially the knee, and that's always been my uh, interest from the beginning. Well, I know who Dr. Insall is, sir, and I know a lot of the older reps and surgeons listening know about him. Could you introduce who that gentleman is to a generation that may be hearing that for the first time? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I uh, haven't been in practice for well over 30 years. It's amazing the younger generation doesn't know some of the godfathers, the pioneers in the world of arthroplasty. John Insull was a outstanding surgeon, educator, researcher, teacher, and he was one of the original pioneers in the development of the modern design of a total knee arthroplasty. He had influence on numerous implant designs starting back in the 70s and uh, right up to his uh, passing in 2000. So he's one of the giants and pioneers. If you're going to uh, carve somebody's face to Mount Rushmore, John Insull should be right there well before me. Any stories from your time with him that jump out at you? There's so many. I mean, I would you know sit with John at the end of the day. I mean, I was fortunate after the uh, fellowship to become his partner ultimately, you know, at the ISK Institute when we first established that program. I mean, at the end of the day, we'd always sit down and reflect on the cases we did or 
a new implant design. And it was always amazing how John would hold, you know, a knee prosthesis in his hand and be able to describe the features almost with his eyes closed and how we could improve it. It was amazing how he could do that. And even in the operating room, everything was very precise, very orderly, you know, and that's why I think we had such reproducible results because he really established a uh, standard of care. And that's really what's led me to be who I am today is trying to emulate him. Well, speaking of design, sir, you brought up that word. What was the state of joint replacement during that period of time on the knee side? You know, it was interesting back in the earlier days, in the uh, late 80s, uh, when I was his fellow, at that point, the insole bursting knee was probably one of the most popular, you know, posterior stabilized uh, knees on the market. It had evolved from a monolithic design to modularity with more shapes and sizes. And there was also the debate between the uh, PS surgeons and the CR surgeons in uh, Boston. John had a a great relationship with uh, Dick Scott, who was a CR surgeon, and the two of them getting together. Especially on the podium, you know, debating back and forth the merits of one design over the other. But at the end of the day, they were uh, true friends, golf partners. They enjoyed going out to dinner, sharing a good bottle of wine together. But it was a time of uh, evolution as we moved from the 80s into the 90s. Uh, we were looking at improving, you know, design features. You know, trying to have less compromise uh, as we perform these procedures with better implants. Well. You- You've been certainly part of that evolution, sir. You had your hand in the most clinically successful design in the history of knee replacement, the next-gen knee. Any thoughts on what that process looked like during that time frame, uh, what it was like to bring all those ideas into one cohesive implant? For me, as a uh, young surgeon back in the day and being fortunate enough to be on the design team with John Insel and uh, several other very prominent uh, surgeons and being an integral part of it, you know, we carefully looked, as I mentioned earlier, some of the compromises we made. We went from a one-sided implant to a right and left implant. We increased the number of uh, sizes, you know, and ultimately through the evolution of next gen, looked at including features such as a high flexion knee. You know, we found that the Middle Eastern and the Asian population were unhappy with uh, total knee design because it would not accommodate, it wasn't designed for the high degree of flexion that they needed for their social uh, and religious activities. You know, John was very instrumental uh, and I was fortunate to work with him on the high flexion knee that accommodated, you know, flexion up to 155 degrees. It is the first implant designed to accommodate that high degree of flexion. A lot of time and energy put into that. You know, in addition, we also looked at the differences between men and women. The gender knee came out of the uh, next-gen project. So we had a narrower implant based upon the morphology, you know, the shapes and sizes of the female knee. I mean, so these were very revolutionary designs that definitely changed the marketplace. You talked about the high flexion. What were some of the other big leaps during that time frame on implant design that really jump out at you? It's amazing as you design an implant and you think, I wanted to uh, go into a high degree of flexion, what you need to do and how are the materials, not just uh, extending the condyles. We had to look at the trochlea. We had to look at the uh, position of the implants. We had to look at the patellofemoral joint. We had to look at, you know, other geometries about the knee. But we also had to look at the surgical technique on how do we put these in? How do we balance the knee? Is there anything different that we need to do? Are there special steps that need to 
to be taken. So we did evolve. You know, it was interesting also that simultaneously on probably a parallel track was this whole world of now MIS surgery, less trauma to the knee joints. We went through in another evolution of instrumentation that we took our big bulky instruments and made them smaller and as precise. And that's the important thing. You can make instruments smaller, but are they going to be as accurate and as precise? Right. And a lot of attention, not to just the implant design, but also to the instrumentation and surgical technique. Well, then we veered into your magnum opus, sir, the persona knee. Great job across the board. Instruments, implants, systems really buttoned up. What was that project like? That had to be very rewarding. So, you know, that was a, a continuation of our uh, next-gen experience. And, uh, you know, next-gen, as you mentioned, was one of the best sellers. It still sells well in the, in the marketplace. Again, we always look at how can we make things better? How can we avoid compromise? And we came up with more shapes and sizes tight increments uh, between the femoral components and more anatomically shaped uh, tibial components so that we can have good coverage, good rotation. So a lot of the features that we had from NextGen that were very favorable, we moved over into the persona, but then we looked at continued improvements, you know, and that's what I enjoy most about being involved on the design teams. It's that continuation of improvements, you know, in implant design. And I think with the persona, as I always like to say, there's less compromise and we can get a very much a personalized fit, almost a customized knee for any patient. And we've done several studies looking at the uh, fit of the uh, current persona implant compared to some of our predicate devices. Well, let's walk through a knee replacement implant by implant, sir. I've got questions on each component. One of your first papers was entitled The Relationship of Lateral Releases to Patella Viability in Total Knee Arthroplasty. It was conventional wisdom for so many years when I started in this industry that a, a lateral release could compromise blood supply, leading to all kinds of mischief. I'm just curious, has history borne out that concern as a real one? You know, it's interesting. You're really going way back into my earlier uh, research <laughs> at uh, particular paper. That was our bone scan paper looking at the issue of, you know, avascular necrosis of the patellar because we had to be a little bit right. of a problem. You know, it's interesting. Our lateral release rate, back, that was back in the 90s, was uh, much higher than it is now. And I think we've gotten so much better in our surgical technique, in the positioning of the components, particular attention to femoral and tibial component rotation in our gap back balancing technique. We've also, with implant design, have a more patella-friendly uh, trochlea, and even the preparation of the uh, patella has gotten better with more attention directed to what I call the anterior compartment of the knee. So we're seeing the lateral release rate drop off precipitously. It's very unusual for me now to do a lateral release routinely. It has to be a particular deformity or a patient who's got prior patellofemoral issues with maltracking, but the majority of the time, my lateral release rate is uh, almost nil. Well, you know what, Dr. Scuderi, if my memory serves correctly, the next gen was kind of first to the market with the whole concept of a patella-friendly design for surgeons that chose not to resurface. I was just curious, should we be resurfacing the patella at all? Yeah, I think that's an ongoing debate. You know, I consider myself a selective resurfacer, you know, so the majority of my cases do get resurfaced. Personally, I think it's a little better quality implant, but there are situations where I've left the patella unresurfaced. And there is a camp that truly believes that the uh, patella does not have to be replaced. You know, this is going to be 
an ongoing debate. But I think what's important, and Kevin, I think you brought this up, is that you have to have a patella-friendly trochlea. The design has to be able to accommodate an unresurfaced patella. You know, and not every implant is designed in that fashion. Well, let's look at the femur, sir. We talked about the patella-friendly design. Q, angle, and all was the introduction of the Zimmer gender knee. I believe you were the first surgeon on Long Island to implant one. Is there any room for improvement on that particular side of the implant, or have we pretty much figured out everything there is to figure out on the femoral component? You know, you always say we think we solved the problem. With the next-gen gender, we did have a lower profile on the trochlea. We increased the Q angle from 7 to 10 degrees. And we felt that was making it even more patella-friendly for the gender implant. I think with our, you know, even our current design, we have a standard femoral component and a narrow femoral component. And our narrow component takes the features of the gender implant. Because it's interesting, while we call it a gender implant, we still had a number of male patients that received a narrow implant. And it's really based upon the morphology. So, you know, I think the direction that we took with improving the trochlea, having two options, options with the standard and a low profile with the gender and now the narrow and the improvement in the Q angle, we have definitely influenced and improved our patellofemoral tracking. You brought up the high flex earlier. Who came up with that? I just think it was a genius idea. Yeah, that was John Insel. John had been uh, traveling to uh, Asia, and both of us had enjoyed visiting Japan, China, you know, and Korea, and uh, speaking to the surgeons there. And John came home once from a trip and said, you know, we need to design an implant to accommodate a high degree of flexion. And then he spent time with the uh, Zimmer engineers and came up with the uh, the next-gen high flex, which increased the uh, posterior condylar radius. And we've taken those features and actually improved it with the persona so that we don't have to take as much bone as we had with next gen. So with persona, one of the nice features is it's more bone preserving than our next gen design. One of my favorite rep tricks, Dr. Scuderi, during my time at Zimmer selling the next gen was that high flex teed me up for a smaller implant on the standard size. So if it was an F flex, that was actually the same cuts for an E standard. So if I was tight in flexion, I could just switch to another component and didn't have to do anything. That was just the the coolest thing of being able to have that option with that system. Yeah, it did give you a little bit more versatility. You know, and, the, and again, that goes to the uh, compromises that one makes. And that's why we took some of those points that you brought up, you know, about femoral sizing and improved that with the uh, with the persona design. Dr. Scuderi, as we continue our tour around the knee, let's look at the tibia. You brought up asymmetric versus symmetric design, and you use the word anatomic. So what's the difference between a knee that's asymmetric and a knee that's anatomic? So when we looked at the uh, shapes and sizes of the uh, tibia. We used a, a bone atlas model to create a shape that would be proportionally increasing or decreasing based upon sizes. And we term it anatomic because of the proportional increase in the aspect ratio on the medial and lateral tibial plateau. I mean, there, there have been some previous asymmetric tibias in, on the market, but with a more anatomically shaped uh, component, that will cover both the medial and lateral tibial plateau, we can get the best coverage and the best rotation. Because one of the issues that one has is you pick a size on the tibia is I want the best coverage. I don't want any overhang, but I want to get it in the right rotation. So with a lot of work with the engineers and my other colleagues on the design team, we came up with an anatomically shaped tibial component 
that will increase or decrease in size very much anatomically proportioned based upon the morphology of that proximal tibia. I'm a believer in that, sir. Dr. Hoffman was a big proponent of that. And I remember back in the days of having a symmetric tibia tray. And whenever you had to do the external rotation, you would end up either uncovering that medial posterior or if you want to cover it, now you're oversizing on the other side. And I distinctly remember one thing Dr. Insall used to say a lot. It registered with me because it was so true. That medial posterior coverage was the most important area for the tibia tray. No, you're right. And uh, that was the issue. So with the symmetrical trays that we had before, you're, you're right. If we pick the size that we got the best coverage immediately and we set the rotation, we would have overhang in the posterior lateral corner that you would get impingement of the popliteus and the posterior lateral structures. And that led to uh, some pain, you know, and discomfort in, in some patients. And then if, if you pick the smaller size, then you were uncovered on the uh, posterior medial corner, you know, of the uh, tibia. That IB2 locking mechanism, doctor, that was a piece of work. That surface was very snug coming in from the side there, but it really did stand the test of time. Have we pretty much gotten the locking mechanism of these knee designs figured out? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that we have. I mean, it's evolved. You know, the IB2, you know, loaded from the side and we had the close pin to lock it. And now we've uh, moved from the uh, next gen dovetail to double dovetail and the peripheral rim locks. I think we've gotten much better and our testing of the implants has definitely showed an improvement. We're not seeing any uh, liftoff or disengagement of the polyethylene with maximum loads from the tray even in the, on the high flexion designs. You know, so this has gotten even better than what we had with NextGen. A lot of stems being impacted on the tibias these days, Dr. Scuderia. As an aside, I did so many IB2CCKs back in the day with no stem extensions at all. And anecdotally, and a little surprisingly, they all seem to do great. Now it seems like stubbies are going in everywhere. Is that extra 30 millimeters, the difference between success and failure? You know, I think that, again, is uh, debatable. There had been some research some uh, outcome studies that show the uh, trays that had a short keel, especially on obese patients, were loosening early and we're seeing a uh, increased use of uh, short stubby stems. They're 30 millimeters in length and they're cemented in. So I, I do use a, a stubby stem on a good number of my patients, especially because I see patients with a higher BMI and I want to give them the best fixation uh, possible. Yet I've looked back on numerous cases and recently did a study just looking at a comparison between my PS and my mid-level constraint, the CPS, stemmed and stemless. And at our uh, early four-year follow-up, no evidence of a loosening or a pending failure. So, you know, I think it's uh, based upon any surgeon's, uh, you know, concerns or apprehension. The short stubby stem is very easy to put on, but we're seeing clinical success without the uh, without the stubby stem also. So we're not seeing uh, any uh, gross loosening that concerns me at all, even with a uh, slightly higher level of constraint. I want to talk about poly for just a second, doctor, because you've seen stem to stern, the challenges that we've had on that front. We had oxidation going on, delamination, pitting. We came out with crosslink poly, which really checked off a lot of these boxes. But then, and I think the consensus I heard at the time, just the oxygen-rich atmosphere of the joint, we were still seeing oxidation of even crosslink poly. So then vitamin E has come to the forefront with so many designs on the market. Do you think that has solved that issue once and for all? 
Yeah, I think that we've definitely had a major improvement in our uh, polyethylene. I'm really not seeing the degree of polyethylene wear, you know, that I had seen, uh, you know, decades ago. So I think that with a cross-linking or vitamin E enriched polyethylene, we're seeing, you know, less wear, less oxidation and uh, not the catastrophic problems that we saw uh, decades ago. You know, I always said there was two issues that we needed to improve. One was fixation and the other was materials and in the materials and the wear characteristics of the uh, polyethylene much better with our current designs. I don't think the osteolysis that we had seen in the past is what we're seeing with the current designs. Well, before we leave the surface, doctor, out of necessity, I saw many a surgeon put CCK surfaces into IB2 PS femurs. This was before PS plus was even a thing. Uh, What role should that mid-level of constraint play these days? You know, I, I was always apprehensive of somebody putting a CCK on a uh, standard femur, but we've improved the uh, stability of the knees uh, that have uh, slight laxity with um, the middle-level constraints DPS. There have been some predicate devices out there on the market from our competitors, and with the uh, current uh, CPS design, I think it's very helpful with that little subtle instability. And you know, some surgeons talk about mid-flexion instability, where you're trying to chase a uh, deformity. And I have found if I have two or three millimeters of laxity, don't want to change that instability, that mid-level constraint with the CPS uh, has been working well. Our clinical outcome shows a, you know, a high degree of uh, a patient satisfaction, no complications. As I mentioned earlier, you see, whether I use a tibial stem or not, we're not seeing any loosening or gross failure. One of the more successful marketing campaigns that I remember over my career, Dr. Scuderi, was one that, that Stryker did about the get-around knee to address mid-flexion instability. I'm just curious, that issue has been tossed around at so many meetings over so many years. Is there a definitive answer as to what was causing it all along? Has it been fixed with implant design technique or a combination? John, first of all, never believed in mid-flexion instability. You know, it was unstable or not, and then flexion instability came around. But the whole issue of mid-flexion instability, you know, is a big question mark. I think the real issue with mid-flexion instability is femoral component position and restoration of the joint line. Because we have, you know, many different implant designs out there, whether you have a single radius on a, on a get-around knee, which we know a knee is not a single radius. You have multiple radii, you have several radii on that J-curve. But At the end of the day, I really think it's where you position that femoral component. What size did I pick and how did I position that component? You know, because I look at the joint line at the end of every case and I look to see that my meniscal rim is right at my joint line. And I'm going to tell you, most of the time, picking the right size and the right position, I'm not seeing mid-flexion instability and I see restoration of the joint line and a well-balanced, stable knee. You brought up sizing, doctor. I remember a talk you did on posterior condylar offset. Tell me, what is going on with that subject that probably many of my listeners have never heard of before? You know, I think it's important, you know, with this issue of posterior condylar offset to understand what we're talking about. Trying to restore the anatomy, the morphology, the shape of the femur, especially in flexion to avoid instability. What you need to understand is as we measure knees um, and size knees, we're sizing it in the AP position. So I want to know that my femoral component sits flush to the anterior cortex. I'm not notching the femur. And that with the posterior condyle, 
the amount of bone that I resect, I'm putting back with the implant so that I retain that offset because that posterior condylar offset gives you your stability and flexion. So that's why I stress this whole issue of appropriate sizing and positioning of the components. We just did a radiographic analysis using the persona implants and looked at how we were able to restore the posterior condylar offset in the uh, shape of the uh, femur, the size of the femur from the preoperative x-ray. And in the vast majority of the cases, we're able to replicate the size of that femur within one millimeter. And what's also been helpful to us is the narrow design. So I can maintain that offset of the posterior condyles with a larger component and not have to compromise with a smaller component due to any medial lateral overhang using the narrower design for that same size. So if I see any overhang, I want to maintain the offset. In the past, you know, I would have had a downsize and then I'd reduce the offset. But now I can maintain the offset with the persona narrow component. And I think that's very important for flexion stability and the overall outcome and performance of the day. I'm going to hang out on sizing just for a second. The IB2 was anterior referencing. A lot of designs these days are posterior referencing. And with two millimeter increments on a lot of femoral designs, the persona is certainly one of them. Does this subject even matter anymore? So, you know, it's funny. You're hitting on one of my favorite topics in a current project I'm working on, by which I'm calling it now anatomic referencing, where or, as I mentioned earlier, the component to the anterior cortex, maintaining attention to the anterior compartment and maintaining my posterior collar offset. So I truly believe with two millimeter increments on the femoral component sizing, anterior referencing and posterior referencing are moot. They no longer really come into play. I think you need to understand what you're doing when you resect the posterior condyles. And, you know, I use a, a hybrid between measure resection and gap balancing. I measure exactly how much bone I'm taking from the posterior condyles. And that's exactly what I'm putting back with the uh, components. So uh, my current philosophy is one of anatomic referencing with implants now that are designed with two millimeter increments. So when we were doing anterior referencing, it was always trying to find that spot that wasn't too high, wasn't too low. When you were talking about that anatomic sizing, I was reading a paper of yours just the other day, a new method for calculating femoral anterior cortex point location and its effect on component sizing and placement. Was that part of this whole process of developing an anatomic placement of these implants? Absolutely, because you have to determine where you're going to position that component in an AP position. You don't want to make it too anterior, you don't want to make it too posterior, and you have to find that sweet spot so that you have a perfect you know, level of resection along the anterior cortex. Well, let's talk for a minute, sir, about how all these implants are going in these days. Techniques in knee surgery textbook. I saw a chapter you had a hand in. Fixation in total knee arthroplasty. What's the best option? Doctor, there's a lot of knees going in these days without a hint of cement. Is that a good idea, a bad idea, or is it patient-dependent? You know, I think right now we're seeing a move towards uh, more cementless knees, improvement in design, improvement in materials for fixation. I still currently cement all my knees. I still feel it's the gold standard. I've had a very good track record with it. No evidence of any uh, significant loosening of either the femur or the tibia. You know, however, as we look to further improve over time our longevity of the implants, 
we are looking seriously at cementless implants, you know, with different materials. Well, Dr. Scuderi, you're cementing your knees. You did a paper with Dr. Insaw on proper cement technique. I was taught early on it's a grout, not a glue, but recently just the opposite has been going on in our space. Put it on while it's sticky. Uh, I'm just curious, what does proper cement technique mean in your OR these days? So it is important that one utilizes cement properly and apply it to the uh, joint for the uh, best fixation. It is a cement that is not a glue. My technique is one to make sure the bone is clean. I use a pulsatile lavage, dry it well. And then I put the cement on both the bone. I like to manually pressurize it. And I like to put it on the backside of the implant. Then I cement the entire implant, you know, especially the uh, tibia, as you said, even with a a short stubby stem, you know, that's going to be completely cemented in the femoral side the entire surface completely uh, cemented. And then make sure that once the implant is impacted, that all that excessive cement is removed. So, uh, you know, I think it's how you prepare the bone, how you apply the cement, and how you ultimately clean the uh, excess cement away. Well, let's talk instruments for a second, sir. Notably, alignment, the IB2 was mechanical, as was the next gen, as is a lot of systems out there. Is it still the gold standard? Should everybody get five degrees, Valgus? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm actually debating this topic at the CCGR meeting uh, next week. And most of the time when I'm at a meeting, they put me on as the contrarian to the uh, kinematic or anatomic alignment because I'm truly a believer of mechanical alignment. You know, I think that has been the gold standard. I believe that that's the best position of the components for uh, longevity, because if you think about the compromises one is starting to make with other alignment techniques, I'm just worried that you're creating other problems. You know, if you say you want to leave the knee in a little varus, you know, we know knees fail in varus. You know, we know that uh, wear occurs mostly on the medial side when a knee is malaligned. So if you start to uh, reposition the uh, components based upon the desire to you know, resurface the joint versus um, replace the joint, I think this can lead to potentially other new problems. You know, it's always, uh, you know, one of debate if the quality of the implant is going to be better if I put the knees in a couple of degrees of varus, the femur a little bit more valgus, leaving a little oblique joint line versus getting the implant mechanically aligned. Um, when these fail, how do they fail? They fail into varus. So why why start off there? And when you revise the knee, how do you re-implant that knee? You replant it, you know, with stems in mechanical alignment. So why didn't you start there, you know, in the first place? And also knees come, you know, with varying degrees of pathology. You know, not every varus knee is the same. What about the varus knee with severe bone loss? How are you going to manage that? Are you, are you going to augment it? You're going to bone graft it? Or are you going to leave it in a little bit of varus? So I think what gets confusing is some of the surgeons, you know, that are looking at, you know, alternative alignments and they, you know, this whole issue of, you know, conventional varus are taking some of the concepts from partial knee replacements and now trying to move it over into the uh, world of total knee replacement, more of a resurfacing than a replacement. I remember the debates on IM versus EM technique for the tibial cut. Uh, what are you doing these days? Are you using any technology to cut your tibia? What's going on? Yeah, so, from, you know, most of my uh, standard knees, I've been using uh, conventional instrumentation, which is an extramedullary tibial guide, an intramedullary femoral guide. Some of the uh, knees that are a little bit more complex with extra-articular deformities, retained hardware. I've been using handheld navigation with the uh, Zimmer Biomed iAssist. We recently have gotten some robots uh, into the uh, health system, and uh, we're going to be looking at the use of robotic surgery with Roser. I think innovative technology is here. It's helpful, but... 
I truly feel, and as I train my fellows, I want them to clearly understand the utility of conventional instrumentation, knowing all the principles that were taught to me by John Insult, so that with the fundamentals of tonally orthoplasty, the mastering of the surgical technique, they are uh, you know able to move into the world of innovative technology and clearly understand what technology affords them. Robotics have taken so much of the oxygen out of the room. I've talked to many a surgeon that was a fellowship director that there's a lot of surgeons coming in the program that have never done a conventionally instrumented knee. Are we maxed out on conventional instruments? you think there's any room for improvement in that space or is it technology from here on out? You know, I think that our conventional instrumentation is pretty good. You know, it comes down to your own personal surgical technique. It's the art of doing a knee replacement. There is a certain degree of skill that one takes uh, knowing how to handle the saw, the drill, placing the instruments. We've gotten much better, as I mentioned earlier, with our instrumentation being smaller than it had been decades ago. And I think our conventional instrumentation is at a reasonable place. We're going to see a continued evolution on the innovative technologies, both with handheld navigation system as well as robotics. It's here to stay. It's increasing in its popularity. The claims of improved accuracy and long-term durability, I think accuracy is comparable compared to a well-trained surgeon. Long-term durability, yet to be seen. But I mean, it's showing a favorable outcome. But it comes at a cost. These uh, systems are not cheap. Most of them are closed systems. And that does necessitate multiple robots to accommodate multiple surgeon preferences. Given your pedigree, Dr. Scuderi, this is probably a very dumb question, but is posterior stabilized knee your go-to? It still is. You know, I feel I'm a disciple of John Insull. I want to maintain Dr. Insull's uh, legacy, and I want my fellows to clearly understand the merits of a, a posterior stabilized knee. Now, I'm not opposed to uh, looking at other designs with the medial congruent design, uh, more dished articular guided motion knee, even CR knees. I think what's most important at the end of the day is whatever implant you choose, that you do it properly, well-balanced knee, and high patient satisfaction with good outcomes. You know, because what are we trying to do is we're trying to improve the quality of the life of our patient that's been disabled by their arthritic Many knee. PS surgeons back in the day would automatically take that extra distal cut in every PS knee as a form of kind of preemptive gap balancing. Was that overkill or does it make any sense? No, I, I think it does. I mean, you know, I always say everything has its own identity and you have to um, clearly identify the identity of that knee. You know, is it a correctable deformity? Is it a fixed deformity? The one issue with a posterior stabilized knee is once you release and remove the posterior cruciate ligament, that flexion gap opens about another three millimeters. You know, so relatively speaking, if you're taking a fixed amount of bone from the posterior condyles and distal femur and you release that PCL, that flexion gap is going to get a little bit bigger. And that's why surgeons generally take that additional two millimeters from the distal femur. I don't think that's overkill. I think it's important to help with the balancing of that flexion extension gap. What about rotation, Dr. Scuderi? You did a paper on the anatomy of the epicondyles of the distal femur. I remember the epicondylar instrument set when it first came out. Very cool. Is it those protuberances we look to for rotation, sir, or white size line, three degrees off posterior, a combination of all? Uh, What do you think? 
I think what's important is we look at alignment, you know, in total ER class is also to consider the rotation of the uh, of the femoral component and the uh, tibial component. With specific attention to the femur, Dr. Insel and I did a lot of work looking at the epicondyles as the rotational axis of the uh, femur. And I truly believe that the transepicondylar axis is the rotational position of the uh, femoral component. Now, there are other secondary landmarks, the AP line of white sides, which is perpendicular to the transepicondylar axis. And if you look at the posterior condyles, we know that if you want to be in line with the transepicondylar axis, you're going to take more bone off the posterior medial than the posterior lateral condyle. So I think it's important that the correct rotation of the component um, is aligned with the, uh, the transepicondylar axis, but can be also checked with uh, other uh, axes such as the AP axis. I remember how tricky it was trying to palpate and really dial in where those epicondyles were. Do you think that's the technology play is being able to find those landmarks a lot easier than we can with our eyes? I, I think a transepicondylar axis is low-hanging fruit for a robot, right? Well, you know, I think that it's a matter of just being familiar with the anatomy of the distal femur. You can easily palpate the medial epicondyle and know it's the sulcus that's centered in that ridge on the medial side, and then the prominence on the uh, lateral just adjacent to the uh, popliteus and the uh, lateral collateral ligament, you know, attachment. Um, so it's a matter of getting familiar with it uh, anatomically. Now with robotic surgery, as you set your landmarks, putting the stylus on, you still have to palpate and identify it. So if you can identify that landmark with a uh, stylus, I think you definitely identify it with a uh, marker during the case if you're using conventional instruments. Well, before we leave the subject of all these design considerations, doctor, you did a paper with another one of my heroes, Dr. Alfred Tria, entitled Total Knee Arthroplasty Design and Kinematics Past, Present, and Future. Uh, any takeaways? You know, as we've been discussing, you know, Total Knee Arthroplasty is continuing to, uh, you know, evolve. We're continuing to look at improvements, you know, and what we have seen over the decades of the implant design is continued improvement. And that the current contemporary uh, designs are probably, uh, I truly think right now, the best iterations you know that we have both in the PS, CR, and even the MC articulation. Well, Dr. Scuderi, I want to talk about revisions for just a second. Uh, I know there was a big revision meeting going on up in New York this weekend. How much constraint is enough in a revision knee? You know, Kevin, as you, as you do revisions, again, similar to a uh, primary knee, you, you really need to know, you know, why did that implant fail? And is it a situation, you know, where I have uh, bone loss with uh, pseudo instability? If it's, or is it true instability to loss of uh, ligaments? And when it comes to the level of constraint, it's whatever constraint is needed to give you a well-balanced, uh, stabilized knee, whether it's uh, a PS articulation, a CPS, a CCK, or ultimately a hinge. So it's based upon the degree of bone loss. Once I reestablish my position of the components and reestablish tension in the collateral ligaments surrounding soft tissues, I may be able to get by with either a PS or a, a middle-level constraint articulation. But if I have true instability of the knee, then I have to make a decision whether I want a constrained implant to substitute for that deficient ligament, or ultimately, if I really have no stability, 
do I need a hinge? Is there any downside to adding more constraint than is necessary? You know, originally, you know, and, and you talked about uh, earlier on uh, some of your own experiences as we we're chatting with the uh, CCKs that were short stems that we just cemented. We were concerned always about loosening of the implants as we increase the constraint. But I think currently we have better implants to achieve better fixation with our stems as well as our cones and sleeves. If we get good metaphyseal and diaphyseal fixation, I'm not so concerned about loosening of the implants with the increasing constraint. But I think what's important is a uh, well-fixed, well-stabilized uh, implant to whatever degree of constraint is needed to guarantee that stability. You're in textbooks on this revision subject. I understand it's as simple as one, two, three. Explain. Well, I try to make it as simple as one, two, three. And most surgeons will say, uh, are you kidding me? The whole <laughs> premise is have a preoperative plan that once you define that mechanism of failure, address that uh, problem with your revision. And in the three-step process, we wrote this up years ago with John Insel, Kelly Vince, and uh, Bob Booth. Um, and to this day, I still follow those uh, principles, is uh, establish your tibial platform because that's the foundation of your revision that influences both flexion and extension. Then picking your right size on your femoral component uh, for step two to re- get the posterior condylar offset and stabilize the knee inflection. Also, cr- make sure you have the correct rotation. And then ultimately, in step three, establishing the joint line with whatever augmentation you need. Because our goal with that one, two, three step process is to get a well-balanced knee, both in flexion and extension. I've heard of an orange peel. I've heard of a dermatologist doing a skin peel. I've never heard of a femoral peel. You talked about this technique in revisions and you've presented on it. What is it? So, um, you know, revision cases sometimes are tough, especially with a very uh, stiff knee as one tries to get exposure to the uh, knee joint. And there are cases where the patients may have an ankylosis or very stiff knee. You know, as I go through my algorithm in uh, exposing a knee joint, standard medial parapetellar arthrotomy, quad snip, clear the gutters, I still may be struggling with my exposure and I need to make a decision. How do I get into that joint? How do I get the exposure that I need in a revision? Do I need a tibial tubercle osteotomy to uh, protect the extensive mechanism? I sometimes uh, do that. But for some severe cases, the femoral peel has been very helpful, especially in a very ankylosed knee joint. Originally described by Russ Windsor, Carlos Avernia had published on it. You know, I have the opportunity of a few meetings to present on it on the uh, exposure on a difficult knee. Uh, and that's really just stripping of that entire distal femur, releasing all the uh, supporting structures on the medial lateral side, as well as that posterior capsule. And so you're totally skeletonizing that femur to get the exposure one needs. It's a pretty radical approach, but these are sometimes very radical cases. Infections. You published a modern approach to preventing prosthetic joint infections back in 2018. What have you learned over the years to minimize the risk? You know, I think what's important is patient optimization, that patients need to become an active participant in their care and treatment, and that we as surgeons need to make sure that that patient is completely optimized uh, for surgery. So, I mean, we look at patients 
patient's weight. We um, are concerned about the patients when their BMI is over 40. Do they have metabolic syndrome? Do we have patients who are diabetic and what's the hemoglobin A1C, a heart stop at eight? Do we get them optimized? What's their blood glucose? Working with their endocrinologists. Smokers, we make sure they stop smoking. While we deal with obesity, what about the malnourished patient? We look at their albumin levels, uh, make sure that they've uh, had supplements and look at anemia. So we used to say we send the patient for medical clearance. We don't send them for medical clearance anymore. What we really like to do is make sure that they're optimized for surgery. Any modifiable risk factors are adjusted to and make them appropriate candidates for surgery. I think that's really what's been helpful in reducing our infection rate. There are other variables, you know, within the operating theater, reducing the number of uh, visitors in and out, reducing traffic, appropriate use of antibiotics antibiotics should be, you know, weight-based for the patients. Those are the major things right now that I think most of us are utilizing in the preparation of our patients for surgery. One of the challenges, you know, has been COVID, and we've been testing everybody for COVID preoperatively. Well, you brought up two words earlier, doctor, risk factors. Here's a word I've never asked anyone about on Device Nation. Fibromyalgia. You did a nationwide comparative analysis of medical complications in fibromyalgia patients following TKA. Genuinely interested. What did you learn? The patients with fibromyalgia are a little bit more difficult to deal with, and it's mostly because they have uh, diffuse muscular pain. And I think as it comes to those patients, it's trying to manage their expectations and try to manage their pain appropriately after uh, surgery. It's important that you continue to counsel them and monitor them during their um, post-operative course so that they can engage in their rehabilitation and get the best functional outcome on their arthroplasty. Well, doctor, I was going to ask you about unicondylar knees, but then I saw a presentation you did at AUKUS entitled, What is the Registry Data for Unicondylar Knee Replacement? So why not TKA? Does the title of that presentation answer my question? I, I, I think it does. <laughs> okay. You know, Kevin, I think that uh, unicondylar knees um, are here. I think there are certain patients that are indicated uh, for it. We're seeing a broadening of the indications, especially uh, from the Oxford group, and more and more surgeons are doing them. Uh, more routinely. I think for the right patient with a surgeon who has the skill and expertise to do that, I think it's appropriate. I also think that with the introduction of robotic surgery on the unicondylar side, it it's probably will help in the accurate position of the components. These procedures are not without complications. They're not without revision rates. You know, I'm not going to tell your audience that the unicondylars are, are no good. That's not true. For the right patients, done properly, I think you can get a good outcome. Tell us about your practice, sir. Where are you working? What are you doing these days? So I'm still busy, still active. I'm part of Northwell Health Orthopedics, operating at uh, Lenox Hill Hospital, as well as one of our community hospitals, Long Island Jewish Valley Stream, that we uh, have made into an orthopedic uh, specialty hospital. I'm actually the director of surgical services there. I work with a good number of uh, well-talented orthoplasty surgeons and have built one of the bigger centers for uh, joint orthoplasty in the Northwell 
system. So I'm proud of what I do. Um, but what I'm really proud of is my uh, fellowship in the fellowship director for adult recon in the uh, hospital system. And it's all my young surgeons uh, coming through, training them and trying to, uh, you know, teach them the uh, philosophies and the techniques uh, taught to me by uh, John Insel decades ago. That has to be so rewarding. Anything you learned from him when you were under him that you're utilizing today with your fellows? You know, I th- and again, it goes to the Having my fellows understand the basic principles of total knee arthroplasty, really focusing on, you know, the soft tissue management, how to do a well-balanced knee. But beyond the surgical technique, it's critical thinking. John was always a thinker and he'd always challenge me with a question. And it's always the why. Why this? Why that? And how, how do you do this? How do you do that? And when I bring all the fellows in, I say to them, you're good surgeons, you know, you you will make you better. But what's most important is I want you to be a good thinker. I want you to, you know, question what you do, face with a challenge. What are my options? What are my solutions? What's the consequence, you know, of each of these solutions? Because ultimately, as you lead, you become the captain of the ship and you're going to have to be making those decisions. You're going to be training younger surgeons also. And that's what I think is important. I really try to uh, make them understand what they do, why they do it and how they do it. And what's the consequences in their decision making? And I also like them to be inquisitive. Um, I really push hard to make sure that they all do a research project, you know, because uh, I learn uh, more each and every day, both from them and by asking questions. And I just want them to be inquisitive because I think ultimately that's our next generation. And I want to leave that next generation as well trained as I was. Well, something I don't hear a lot about in my space with orthopedic surgeons is telehealth. Is that a good idea or a bad idea for? For surgeons looking to add services to the menu? You know, since uh, COVID, we've seen uh, the utility of telehealth and telemedicine move into uh, practices. It's a matter of staying engaged with the patients. You know, when COVID was a significant uh, pandemic, uh, we needed to uh, contact patients that had surgery just prior to the shutdown of the hospitals. And we found that with a uh, telehealth program, with televideo conferencing uh, and telephonic uh, conversations, with them in a more organized manner, we were able to keep them engaged with a high, you know, satisfaction rate. So initially, you know, it, during COVID, my recollection, in our system, we were in the high 80th percentile because the offices were closed. We've now migrated down to the single percentages, but there's still some utility to staying engaged with the patients with a telehealth uh, program. You know, orthopedics is not as engaging in uh, telehealth as primary care physicians because we need to examine our patients. Right. And we need to examine the joint. We need to see their mobility. We've tried to do this with the televideo conferencing. It works, but not as good. But I think it is definitely an adjunct that we've uh, seen maintain itself in certain practices. We have a lot of reps that listen to this show, me especially, and you have seen your share of us over the years. I'm just curious, what separates the good reps from the great ones? You know, I've had a, a lot of great reps over the years, and I, I would say that all my reps have been great reps because we've had a uh, very close and personal relationship. The important thing is realize that my reps and the reps that I have encountered have always been part of the team. They've been well engaged with me and my fellows. As we prepare for the case, they're there also understanding what my plans are and uh, making sure that, you know, all the equipment, instrumentation, and implants are all 
always available uh, to me and they've been very, very responsive to uh, my particular needs. You know, be a part of the team and be responsive to your surgeons and be responsible for the work that you do with them. Well, Dr. Scuderi, after you look over your incredible career, what are the things you're most proud of? You know, Kevin, I, I look back you now, it's uh, it's actually 35 years. I look back at my practice. Uh, I'm uh, happy for what I've been able to accomplish. The impact that I've had in the world of totally arthroplasty, having been past president of the uh, Knee Society, and very instrumental, and continue to work with the Knee Society as the uh, premier organization uh, for education education and research in uh, knee arthroplasty. I'm proud of the uh, fellowship program, as I mentioned, preparing the new young surgeons uh, for our future. And I'm um, proud of all the uh, friends and colleagues that I have made and continue to make throughout my career. Well, Dr. Scuderi, it goes without saying, you could stop right now, bask in the glow and just look down on all of us. (laughs) But you clearly want to keep doing this thing. Uh, What's left out there that you still want to get done? You know, I I still feel young and energized. I still enjoy going to work every day, seeing my patients, doing surgery. And I'm not ready to give it up yet. As long as I have the energy to do it, I'm going to continue to uh, do what I do. What do you want your legacy to be, sir? If I was to leave a legacy, I think my legacy would be the young doctors that I've trained. I mean, because that's the reality, um, because that becomes a living testimonial to what you've done. Well, doctor, you do a lot of things. I imagine free time is not exactly on your calendar, but I'm just curious. What do you like to do outside the OR? Oh, it's all about family. I I love spending time with uh, my grandkids. I try to improve my golf game, spend time with my wife. I like to uh, travel down to Florida to the warmer weather periodically to get some fun and sun on the beach. But at the end of the day, it's all about having my kids around me and my grandkids. Well, there is a certain age you reach in New York where they summarily throw you out to go to Florida, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's not even an option. Yeah, well, I hope they throw me out soon then, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Scuderi, the Reconstruction Hall of Fame, you talked about Dr. Insall being in it. Your name's in it too, sir. And I am so grateful to be able to thank you in person, not only for your amazing work in our space, but how much you inspired my love for this business so early in my career. Great job. And I just want to say well done. Thanks, Kevin. It was really a pleasure talking to you about this. You made me reflect back on uh, 35 years and hopefully a few more years to come. But thanks for the time. I really enjoyed our our conversation. Wow. I cannot thank Dr. Scuderi enough for taking time out to share his life and amazing contributions with the Device Nation audience. We have truly been in the presence of greatness and what a legacy he continues to hammer out back in New York, bringing solutions to patient and industry pain. Speaking of, we've talked about joy. We've talked about managing the pain brought on by decisions above our pay grade. I so look forward to exploring the next pain point atmosphere with you on the next episode. Dr. Scuderi still clearly likes going to work every day. Do you? Do I? If not, what can be done to make it a happy drive? I cannot wait to explore this relevant topic with you, the best of the best. Hope you all have a great day. A great week. And remember, set yourself free in 2023.